0: Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanhoyechurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, we are still in our series about the life of Abraham, and you know, in the life of Abraham, there are probably two events that most people know, they've heard of at some point or another. So whether you went to Sunday school when you were a kid growing up, or you went to, um, oh, vacation Bible school, there's these two events in Abraham's life that most people are familiar with. One of them has to do with his son Isaac, and something that happens on a mountainside far away, and we're going to talk about that in like three weeks. The other one is the thing we're talking about this morning, and that is the story about Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, many people know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but don't actually know that it's connected to the life of Abraham, because the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is almost this standalone thing separate from when we talk about Abraham. But it is a part of the story of Abraham, it's connected. Last week, when we read Genesis chapter 18, we read about a conversation that God and Abraham had. They stood kind of on an elevated place, like a mountainside or something, looking down on the city of Sodom, and they talked about what was going to happen. God said, look, I've heard some things. I've heard a cry, and I want to go down into Sodom and check it out to see, is it as bad as I've heard it is? And if it is, I'm going to know. And, and then in the conversation, it's actually Abraham who gets worried. If it's as bad as it sounds, is God going to destroy the whole city? God, would you really destroy the city if there are righteous people still living there? And so Abraham and God have this back and forth conversation where Abraham asks, what if there's 50 or 45 or 40, 30, 20 Ten righteous men. Would you destroy the city if there are ten righteous men? And God says, no. No, I won't destroy it if there's ten. And so part of the question we ask ourselves last week a little bit is, why is Lot even concerned about Sodom? If we go back, and excuse me, not Lot, uh, Abraham. If we go back in the story of Abraham... He met the king of Sodom, didn't like the king of Sodom, felt like he couldn't trust the king of Sodom. Remember, Abraham went to war and rescued a bunch of people and possessions that an enemy king had come in and taken. He restored them to freedom. And the king of Sodom offered him payment, essentially. And Abraham said, no. So why would he care? Because his nephew, Lot, lives in Sodom. And the last time that we heard about Lot... He had pitched his tents near Sodom. But at this point, he's living in Sodom. When God first calls Abraham, he leaves the place that he knew. He leaves the people that he calls family, and he takes two people with him. He takes his wife, and he takes his nephew Lot. And now it would seem that God is talking about checking out what's happening in Sodom. And he's worried for a lot. So this week, we're continuing in our series talking about Abraham. And we're looking at his faith, his life, his journey. We want to know what's happening in Abraham's life so we can learn from it. And each week, what we're trying to do is take a look at each chapter and say, how can we grow? As a community, as individuals, how do we need to grow? And then we're taking a moment and we're saying, where's the gospel? The good news? Does Jesus show up in this passage somewhere? Is he he mentioned? Is there a foreshadowing of something to come? We want to take a look at the gospel in the passage too. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to go with me to Genesis chapter 19. And I'm going to tell you, because of our technical difficulties, there's no scripture on the screen. So that might encourage you to actually get the Bible out of the chair in front of you as well, or get your Bible app out. Um, We're going to Genesis chapter 19. And if you grab a Bible from the chairs, that's going to be on page 16. Um, if you don't have a Bible this morning, like you just don't have a Bible period, please take one of our Bibles. It's important to us that you have one. So we just want to give that to you as a gift. So if you don't have one, take the one you're using this morning with you, as long as you're not barring your neighbors. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so you got that. All right. We're going to start in verse one of chapter 19. And we're going to read to the first part of verse 3. And we're just going to walk through this chapter kind of verse by verse and talk about it as we go, all right? Starting in verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. I'm going to pause there. The story begins with Lot sitting at the city gates. And we might wonder, why is Lot sitting at the city gates? And so one of the things that seems to be true of of biblical times is that really important meetings happened at the city gates. The elders of the city would gather at the city gates. This is where they would discuss uh, decisions that needed to be made. They would discuss uh, civil affairs and even politics. And so there are various scholars out there who believe that Lot, while he lived in Sodom, had actually gotten involved in politics in some way, shape, or form, hopefully to enact change in what was happening in the city of Sodom. And so that is kind of the first thing that we all have to engage is is politics. If Lot decided to get involved in politics, whether officially or unofficially, he's at the city gates, they're talking about civil affairs, is that something that we should be involved in? And that's a decision you have to make on your own. It's not a decision that anyone can make for you. How much trust and time and energy are you willing to put into the political system? Is that where God has called you to make a change? Can change happen through the political system? Well, now, a fellow pastor of mine says that um, good politics can't help a bad heart. There's something else that helps a bad heart. And we know the answer to that is Jesus. We know the answer to that is a relationship with God. But good politics don't fix a bad heart, is what he would say. And so that's something for us to consider, too, is what sort of change are we trying to enact? Is it change on an individual basis, or is it change on a societal level? Enacting change through politics is probably part of what makes Lot realize that the city is in such bad shape. Another part of the reason that he's probably at the city gates is because he has seen time and again, when visitors come to the city, what happens to them. And so he sits at the city gates, waiting for visitors to come to try and catch them before they go into the city. He says, come to my house. I'll feed you. You can wash your feet. And then early in the morning, you can get out of here. It's like he's like secretly. I I want you to come to my house under nightfall. I want you to leave before it gets light so no one sees you're here. Get in and get out quickly because Lot knows what happens to visitors who try to stay. These angels say, no, no, we're gonna stay in the city square where everyone can see them, where everyone would know that they're there, not behind closed doors or behind a wall or closed windows. No, where everyone can see them. And Lot is so insisting that they decide to go with him. So we'll pick it up here in the rest of verse three. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. We're going to pause there. I want to talk for a moment about something called groupthink. We've talked about this before, but it probably was like nine months ago. Uh, Groupthink is a a psychological term that talks about, it's used to describe when people in a group make irrational decisions or non-optimal decisions because they either fear or they have been discouraged from disagreeing with the group. And an easier way to say that is just it's when a group of people get together and begin to think with one mind. Suddenly you'll have no one in the group who's willing to speak up. What's interesting here is that this says all the men of the city, both young and old, come together. It's like the city has a mind of its own. It's like the city has taken on a life of its own. It's like there's no individuals in the city anymore, except maybe Lot, but they all come together with one intention in mind, and that is to rape these visitors. I don't even think that they know that they're angels. They're just interested in what they can get out of them. And of course, in this day and age, and still today even, sex is something that's used as as a power thing. It's used as a punishment. It's used to show who's in control. This is part of what is breaking God's heart. We talked last week, we went to the the book of Ezekiel and said, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? And part of it was that they, they were rich, they were conceited, they didn't care for the poor, and they were doing things that broke God's heart. This is part of what's happening that is breaking God's heart. The city in Scripture, in Old Testament literature, is often used to describe bad things, If we go back in time and we think about Cain and Abel, when Cain kills Abel and then he leaves, where does he go? He goes to the cities. When the book of Genesis describes Noah's time, the men had gotten so evil and Noah was the only righteous man left on earth, talking about cities. Again, cities is often used as a a metaphor to describe evil things happening. And you and I know from living in a, a rural area, city life and rural life, city life and suburban life, they're different. There's different pace. There's, different, uh, there's a different reality, different things to worry about. But here's one of the interesting things. I feel like I have to tell you that cities are used that way in Scripture because it's important to know. But we're going to see in this chapter alone, in the beginning we talk about cities, at the end, we end this passage in a cave. It doesn't get much more rural than that and evil still happens, okay? So let's be aware that it happens everywhere, okay? Let's keep reading. Verse six, Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind them and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you would like with them, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof, Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so they could not find the door. We'll pause again. Lot tries to make peace. And so if in the back of your head, you're picturing Lot as some sort of a, a politician, like he's gotten involved in politics and civil action, he's doing, he's doing the politician thing. He's trying to make peace. He walks outside the door to this mob. He doesn't stay inside, he walks outside. He calls them friends. Friends don't do this thing. He's trying to make peace. He's doing the best he can. And then he says something That we are positive that he is not going to get the mug that says Dad of the Year at Christmas time. (laughs) He makes he makes a comment here and says, "Don't hurt the visitors, but I have two daughters that you can do whatever you want with them." That is, we're going to talk more about that later. So I'm going to leave that one alone for now. Um, Another thing to note: the crowd still views Lot as a foreigner. And that's something that's a little important for us here because it's really easy for us to be judgmental of Lot. And again, we're going to talk more about that later. Very judgmental. But here's the, the thing is, this, uh, this group think, the city, all the people that are there doing these terrible things that are breaking the heart of God, they don't view Lot as one of them. You foreigner. You want to play judge now? This might be a huge part of what saves him, quite honestly. And now, I do want to say this too. We talked about hospitality last week. That was part of our, our growth area. How can we be more hospitable as individuals and as a community? Lot is trying really hard to do radical hospitality. He's doing it really badly. He's making really bad decisions. So I'm not telling you that he's an example you should follow. But can you see how Lot, in his mind, he is protecting at all costs these visitors, these angels who have come to him? He's doing his best to be radically hospitable, but it's coming at the expense of his daughters, all right? That's something for us to keep in mind, that sometimes we can try our best to make a good decision, to do right. But because we're so immersed in something, even the right decision, we don't see the bad consequences that might come with it. And then it it kind of tells us that the angels strike everyone blind. They can't find the door. They can't get in. So the immediate danger of them busting down the door is over. So we're going to pick it up in verse 12, and we're going to read a big chunk here. We're going to go to verse 22, so bear with me. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great, That he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons in law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons in law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown me a great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will, regra- I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zor. We'll stop there. Zor is a word that means small. So the town that Lot does run to is a town called Small Town. Um, Probably one of the reasons that Lot is so adamant, like, hey, it's a small town, it's just a little town, is because he's trying to point out that all the stuff that can go really badly in the big bad city like Sodom, that doesn't happen in a small town. It's a small town, it's a small town, I'll be good there, don't worry. Lot tries to grab his son-in-law's, you notice this, but his son-in-laws don't take him seriously, so his son-in-laws get left behind. The angel instructs Lot and his family to head to the mountains. Don't stay on the plain. Why? It's not just the city that's about to be destroyed, is it? You remember back when we studied the passage where Lot and Abraham split? They went their separate ways, And Lot looked out across the land, and he saw this beautiful, fertile land that reminded him of of what he heard the Garden of Eden would sound like. So he said, I want this land. And the way that it's written in Genesis, it's written kind of funnily, like um, it's telling us, yeah, we know that land's in bad shape now, but in that day, it was beautiful. And when we talked about that, we said it was kind of like One of us saying, oh, that fertile land, that beautiful land that reminds us of the Garden of Eden over in Chernobyl. Like all of us today know, Chernobyl had a terrible nuclear accident. You can't live there, right? But back in the day, it was beautiful. It was gorgeous way before that. It's not just a city that's about to be destroyed. It's this whole landscape. It's this whole plain There are other little towns and cities that are gonna get wrapped up in this whole thing. It's not just this one. And so as the angel tells Lot to flee to the mountains, he looks at the mountains and he says, there's no way I can get there in time. Please, let me just go to this little town. And the angel says, okay, I'm not gonna start the bombardment. I'm not gonna start the destruction until you are there. Let's pick it up in verse 23. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Pause. This is kind of the other... Picture that we have in our minds, and, and maybe even in your Bible as a kid that you had pictures every so often, there was a picture of a woman who had just looked over her shoulder, but now she was obviously a pillar of salt. There's even a rock formation over in this area that they still call Lot's wife. They call, it's made of rock. It's not of salt, but that's what they call it. It's a reminder. This is a reminder that we have, and it's probably not so simple as she looked over her shoulder, quite honestly. If we look in the passage, when they're trying to get everyone to leave the city, you see that Abraham hesitates, right? He hesitates. He doesn't, he's not sure if he should go, and the angels grab him and his whole family and sweep them right out of the city. It's probably not so simple that she just looks over her shoulder. This is probably telling us that she wanted to stay. Like the son-in-law, she didn't take this seriously, and she's now a pillar of salt because of it. Verse 27, early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. In our story suddenly, if it was a movie, it's following Lot this whole time and it just, it cuts away and we're back at Abraham. And Abraham is standing in the very spot where he stood with the Lord, where he prayed, where he talked with God and he begged on behalf of Sodom, don't destroy it if there's 10 righteous men. He's standing here now looking down at the plain, looking down at these cities and all he can see is smoke, smoke rising, dense, thick, nasty smoke rising. And Abraham surely knows what has happened to everyone and everything that's on the plane. He watches the smoke rise into the sky. Scripture tells us that in the midst of the destruction, God remembers his conversation with Abraham. He remembers. He honors his conversation with Abraham. Remember, God had said, for even 10 righteous men in the city, I'll spare the city. Logically, we can conclude that there was not even 10 righteous men in Sodom. Lot, maybe the only one. But we can also conclude that God didn't just listen to Abraham. He did more than that. He honored the prayer and the conversation that Abraham and God had by sparing Lot. So last week, we learned a couple of key things about God. I said, these are things you write down if, you're, if you take notes and you write things down. We heard that you know, God hears and responds to the cry of his people. When you hear someone who's crying out, that's compassion. God is compassionate. God wants to go do his due, do his due diligence and check in and see if what he's heard is as bad as it sounds, Okay? That's justice. God is just. And God said He would spare a city of wicked people if there was just 10 righteous men. That's grace. Last week we learned that God is compassionate, just and gracious. and now this week we can to add something to the list. God hears Abraham. He's moved by Abraham, which means that God is honorable. God regards his relationship with Abraham. Let's pick it up in verse 30. The story is about to get weirder if you're unfamiliar with the story. Um, Lot and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zor. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, our father is old and there is no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our Father. We'll pause there. Um, Remember that the angel instructed them originally to go to the mountains. And so Abraham kind of made a deal. We can't get to the mountains. We're gonna stop at this little city. But Abraham does follow the instructions and they leave the the little town and they they head to the the mountains, which is where they kind of set up camp in this cave. One of the things that commentaries and, and scholars point out is is so very likely That Lot and his daughters are very familiar. His family is very familiar with the story of Noah and the flood, the great flood that flooded all the earth, and it destroyed every unrighteous person, leaving only a single family alive. And from that single family that was alive, they had to make more people. It's totally possible that his family thinks this is Armageddon, there's no one left but us. That when they left Zor, Zor would probably be destroyed as well. That they were hightailing into the mountains and they would be alone. And so now they're left with the question, how do we have more children? How do we have more family? And they create a plan. Doesn't mean it's a right plan. Doesn't mean their conclusions were right. Doesn't mean it was a right plan. But they've hatched a plan to rape their father. Let's pick it up in verse 33. That night they got their father to drink wine. And the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine also that night. And the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. I'll pause there, and then we'll finish it. I just want to say... One of the things that we notice from this passage is the, the need to get the father drunk, which does suggest to us that this is not a choice he would ever make otherwise. All right, so that's something that I just wanted to, to point out. Let's finish the passage, verse 36 and 30, 37, 38. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami, He is the father of the Ammonites today. And we're gonna kind of just let it stand as it is. I'm just gonna let you remember in your head that the sons are the father of nations now, okay? So we have Moab, the father of Moabites, Ben-Ami, the father of the Ammonites. We're gonna get into our growth area this morning. Again, this is our area where we say, okay, we're looking at the passage. How does this passage challenge us to grow as a community, as individuals, and so to do that this morning, I want to go back to verse 6. I said I'd come back to this. It says, Lot went outside to meet them. He shut the door behind them, and he said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you would like with them. All right, let's just let's spend a couple minutes talking about this. Um, Lot offers his daughters up. Like, this is bad. This is bad. This is terrible. Uh, it's almost as though he doesn't realize how awful this is. Lot is so immersed in this culture, this society, in seeing what he've see- he's seen, that he thinks that this is a better option than what he knows will happen otherwise. Okay? I, I want to talk a little bit about the people that you spend time with. And this might sound a little bit like a youth group lesson. But that's okay because sometimes we need to be reminded of the stuff that we learned when we were youth. I think that's really important. There is no lesson that we can't relearn and learn anew, okay? Um, Have you ever heard you are who you hang out with? Sound familiar? You are the company you keep, yeah? There has been some research done on the influence of social networks that would suggest that your personality is shaped by the five people you spend the most time with. The five people you spend the most time with. So in your head right now, I want you to think, who are the five people you spend the most time with? The most influential people on you, who are they? Can you you even think that there's maybe some little pieces of your personality that you kind of get, adapt, you reflect back on the people that are with you? Now here's the thing. There's actually more research being done that would suggest we're not talking just about the five closest people to you. But it actually goes far beyond that. Um, There's some research done over 30 years, three decades. This is good research because it's rare that you find research done over the course of that length of time. Okay, So this isn't just cursory conclusions that someone is just kind of shooting from the hip and making. Over 30 years, they tracked um, smoking and obesity. And one of the things that they realized is that if a person who is your friend, becomes obese, they're your direct friend, you are 45% more likely to gain weight yourself. If a person who is your direct friend, your direct relationship, um, smokes, you're 61% more likely to smoke. So your immediate relationships, right? But it's more than that because the research also begins to show over those decades that if a friend of your friend becomes obese, that you are 20% more likely to gain weight. If a friend of your friend begins to smoke, you're 29% more likely to smoke. It's not just the five people that surround you. It's also the people that surround them, that have an impact on them, that have an impact on you, right? So hear me now. We're not talking about smoking. We're not talking about weight. That's not the point. That's what they did in the research to prove the point that you are impacted by the people who are around you, which can lead us into the same problem that Lot had, where we can begin to do things that seem normal, that seem right, that are far from right, okay? Let me talk for a moment about neuroscience, okay? Neuroscience is the study of how our brains work, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not an expert on this by any means. So we're keeping this pretty simple this morning. You all know negative people, right? You got some negative people in your lives? There's this absolutely fascinating study that was done about negative people. They named three types of negative people. One is the complainer. The person who complains about everything, about every situation, every decision, or everything that's going on. Then they had the victim. And the victim is somebody who always feels like everyone is against them, okay? And so it doesn't matter how things go, how the conversations go, they're the victim. And then you have people who blow their fuse very quickly and are never actually interested in hearing like problem-solving techniques, okay? They're not looking for solutions. They just blow their top, all right? So we have the, the fuse blower, the victim, and the complainer. And we're gonna sum all those three up by saying negative people. Can you think of some people in your life that might fit one or more of those categories? Neuroscience is studying the impact of negative people on your brain. Studying the impact of negative people on your brain. Our brain works through neurons. They fire at different times. And when neurons fire together, your brain automatically makes it easier for them to fire together again in the future. Your brain consistently rewires itself so the things that you do commonly or the things you think commonly become easier to do and easier to think. Does that make sense? So here's the conclusion that some of these studies are coming out with. When you spend time with negative people, when you spend time with somebody who complains constantly, complains about everything, you are now hearing the negative thoughts, your brain is processing the negative thoughts, and it is becoming easier for you to think the negative thoughts. It's becoming easier for you to be the complainer. When you spend time with somebody who's always the victim, who's always blaming everybody else, everybody's against me, it becomes easier for you to then think you are the victim as well. Our brain rewires itself based on who we spend time with. You see what I'm saying? It's the people that we spend time with, they affect our personality. They affect the decisions that we make. They affect how our brains are wired. So you might not be the company that you keep, but the company that you keep surely matters. So if you are spending time with negative people all of the time, you're spending time with people who are making poor decisions, if you are immersing yourself in a community and a culture that is consistently making decisions that hurt God's heart, it becomes that much easier for you to get on board. It becomes that much easier for those things to become normal. And so we need to be cognizant of that. And so I pray that no one here is stuck in that sort of a situation or is stuck in that sort of a community. I wouldn't want that. But if there's anybody here this morning who, as I describe those people, and we talk about being surrounded by those type of people consistently, if that rings a bell for you, there are alarms going off that those are the people that you've chosen to surround yourself with, if you can think back to the last time you grabbed coffee or had breakfast with somebody who consistently was complaining or sharing something that was unhelpful and then you left that and you felt a little bitter and you felt a little bit more like complaining and you went home and you took it out on your family because now you're in a bad mood, we're talking to you. There are things in our lives that have to change if that's where we're spending our time and that's who we're choosing to surround ourselves with. That's not good. So you might be the person who needs to consider changing who you spend time with. And you might be the person who needs to consider being a little less negative. Okay? All right. We're gonna go into our gospel section and we're gonna finish up here this morning. Um, You know, finding the good news in this passage, you think it might be hard See, look at this passage, and it is, it is strange. It's pretty messed up, even by today's standards. Um, we s- seem to judge people by the outward appearance. Scripture tells us that God looks at things differently. Um, scripture tells us that God's ways are not our ways. That's a good thing. Because sometimes you and I can judge a part of the story really harshly, we could say this part of the story is the worst part of the story. Sometimes we judge a person by their worst day, not their best day, which means that if you're the one being judged, it's good that God sees you differently than everyone else. God knows your heart, he knows what's happening there. It also means that if you're the one doing the judging, you need to stop because you don't have God's eyes and you don't have God's heart and you need those two things to do judgment correctly. So you need to stop judging if you're that person. In today's chapter, we heard Lot offer up his daughter. I have two daughters. They've never been with a man. Let me bring them out. You can do whatever you want with them. And I think we can all agree that it'd be pretty easy for us to look down on Lot for this. You know, we, I make the joke he's not going to get the Father of the Year award. But, and that's a joke. But beyond that, we can say Lot was evil. Interestingly enough, in 2 Peter, the apostle Peter writes about Lot. He gets the last word in scripture on Lot. And here's what he says. A righteous man. Lot was a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. That's what we know about Lot. And so in the midst of the situation, in the midst of the story we read this morning, yeah, we can judge him, but you know, God actually sees how bothered he is. God actually sees why he might be getting involved in politics because this has to change and this has to stop. And God actually sees how his heart is moved. We might judge him, but God sees him as righteous. This is the same word that's used to describe Abraham. Abraham is righteous because of his faith. Peter uses the same word to describe Lot. That's interesting. See, God takes our junk. He takes our worst day. He takes the most messed up decision that we've ever made, and God can redeem that. He can. He can make it beautiful. He can take a person's story and make it nothing less than good news. He can make it gospel. You don't believe me? Boy, this book is full of people's stories being redeemed. Abraham's grandson steals the blessing from his older brother. And to you, that might not sound like a big deal, but in this day, it's such a big deal that his older brother vows to kill him, and so he has to run away from home. He runs away from home, and he continues to make not-so-great decisions. He gets in trouble. But you know what God does? God brings him back. God redeems his story. In fact, God reunites the brothers together, and no one dies. God takes a prostitute, named Rahab, and he changes her life completely. Through one moment, through one act, her life is altered forever. And you know what? She ends up being the great, great grandmother of a king. That king, well, that king was an adulterer and a murderer and made poor decisions. But you know what? God used him. God redeemed him. We know him as a man who was after God's own heart. God used him to unite a country and begin building a temple. And so now let's talk about Lot's daughters. It's easy for us to judge Lot's daughters. I mean, they rape. They rape their father to get pregnant and have sons. And this is one of those situations where we look at him and say, how is it possible that God could ever redeem this situation? But remember, That older daughter had a son named Moab, who ends up being the father of the Moabites, which is a people group. Do you know who's a Moabite? It's a lady named Ruth. Ruth was the daughter-in-law of that prostitute named Rahab. She was the great-grandmother of a king named David. It's from David's line that a man named Joseph will be born who will marry a woman named Mary who will have a son named Jesus. You know, sometimes it takes longer, sometimes it's shorter, but there is nothing that you can do, that you can say. There is no baggage you can bring here this morning that's going to, one, surprise God, and two, make you so far that God can't redeem it, if only you would choose. But that's where the, the story begins for so many. We have to choose. God is Huge, he's amazing. And this this story alone should tell us that God thinks it's possible to redeem everyone. It doesn't matter if you're an adulterer or a prostitute. Doesn't matter if you're if you've murdered somebody or you've raped somebody. He makes a shepherd boy a king. And that king makes terrible mistakes and he still uses them. He makes tax collectors whole. He takes fishermen and he makes them apostles. He can heal you of anything that you bring to him. He can break the chains that hold you back, the ones that feel like they're pinning you down. He can break those chains for you. There's nothing that you can do that's going to separate you from God if you just bring it to him. And the mistake that we so often make is we run away from him with all of this stuff. We need to run to him with all of this stuff because he did something A long time ago, he died on a cross for us to heal us, to make us whole, to redeem us. And that is a gift that he offers everyone because God is just and gracious and honorable because God is beautiful. And his glorious and unfailing love speaks mercy over you. Let's choose that today. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.